And well, we are continuing with a series that we <clears throat> have spread out over the year. We're calling this series Critical Concerns, and we've already had one uh, sermon in this series, and we'll have one, maybe two more this year, uh, spreading it out, dealing with uh, various topics. Last time we talked about uh, the Bible, that the Bible is God's Word, that it is uh, secure, it is safe, it is preserved properly in its, in its uh, giving to us and its preservation by us, that God has overseen the transmission of His Word to protect and to safeguard. And so when you open that Bible, it is a safe thing to look at that Bible and say, God has given me this Word. By this Word, I'm made clean. It says in John 17, 17, Jesus was praying and He said, Sanctify them by Your Word. Your Word is truth. That Bible that you hold in your hand, that Bible that we encourage you to read on a regular basis and allow it to infiltrate your life, that Word is capable of changing our lives and drawing us closer to Christ. Yeah, so the foundation of all that we do here at Risen Life is to teach God's Word, to teach it faithfully, <clears throat> excuse me, and to just realize that many of the things we hear out there in the culture uh, don't agree with what's said here. And so that's why we got to hear this so that we think truth and think clearly because this word is without error and it speaks to us absolute truth. And so we will stand on it. And as we talk about critical issues, we're talking about issues in the culture that are often debated and they're often contradictory to what the Bible teaches. And so to think clearly about what the Bible says about these issues is really critical. Now it is, it is faith to believe that the Bible is God's word our contention is it is a reasonable faith. It is a reasoned faith. Now we can take all of the apologetics and they can walk us all the way up to the cliff, but at some point we have to choose to believe. We just take a leap off the cliff and say, I just choose to believe that the Bible is God's Word. Now in Ezra 7.10, if the Bible is God's Word, then it is our responsibility to do what Ezra did in chapter 7 verse 10 when it says he determined to seek the law of the Lord. That means he read it, he studied it, he determined to find out what it meant and said. He, de he determined to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, to live by it, and then to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. And how many of us know someone, how many of us have been people who have been glad to teach it before we've done it? <laughs> If we're not going to do it first, we have no authority to teach it. And so the Bible, our, our contention is that it is reasonable to believe what the Bible has to say is God's eternal final word to us. Now the truth we're going to look at this morning that's taught in the Bible is what we're calling the exclusivity of the gospel. Uh, and that is that there is only one way to heaven. And that is through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. It is not what the culture teaches. We're well aware of that. It is, however, what the Bible teaches, that Jesus is the only way. So let me read you three verses. We could read lots of them, but let's just listen to what the Bible says about this matter. Uh, first one is first, first Timothy 2, 3 to 6. It says, this is good, <clears throat> and it is pleasing in the light of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of the truth. I, I love our God's heart. He wants all people to be saved. Then he says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so uh, the Bible tells us there's only one way, one mediator, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4.12. <clears throat> and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must 
be saved. And then John 14, 6, probably the most famous proclamation of this truth. Jesus said it himself. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we live in a culture that where we're seeing pluralism on the rise. Now, pluralism says that anybody's truth, if it's truth for them, then it's truth. It's their truth and it'll work for them. Whatever, whatever makes them happy at the end of the day is adequate for their relationship with God. That's, that's pluralism. Anybody's way is a good way if it brings them happiness and peace. Our contention as Christians is that God's way is the right way. And the reason we believe that is because we just believe that's what the Bible says. That, that's just what it says. Jesus stated very clearly that he is the only way. He is the only truth and he's the only life. And it's impossible to get to the Father except through him. Now, if you want to come into my house, I'm probably going to be glad for you to come into my house. I would encourage you not to come in through a window in the middle of the night. <laughs> because if you come in through a window in the middle of the night, you're going to hear a really weird sound. It's about five rounds being chambered all at the same time all around the room. <laughs> there is a way into my house. And that way is through my invitation, please through my front door, I don't want to have to change my window. And Jesus said, I am the door. I'm the only way. No one gets into the presence of the Father except through Him. Yeah. We really live in a place of, complete, uh, of competing claims where the culture claims pluralism, that there are many ways and any way you come up with, as long as it works for you, is a good way. That's pluralism. That's what the culture teaches. The Bible teaches there is one way. There is truth and there are lies. And the Bible will teach us truth. And those two compete. They're competing truth claims. One is there's many ways. One is there's only one way. And it actually astounds me as an engineer, the pluralistic viewpoint, that all these competing claims for truth <laughs> can all be equally true even though they all contradict each other. That makes no sense to me. But our culture buys this. If we lived scientifically this way, if we built our cars this way, if we built our airplanes this way, we'd be, it would be a disaster. But somehow we let our religious views be this way. It's craziness to me. And yet, but that is, that, that's the competing truth claim. There is truth and lies or everything is true. What are you going to believe? The Bible says there's one way. Now, there, there's a claim that says if you believe exclusivity, if you believe there's only one way, then you're closed-minded. And that's a truth claim, and it's, it's just so exclusionary. Well, that's a true statement. But the opposite of that statement is also true. That if you believe that everybody's way is as good as anybody else's way, that is also a truth statement, and you're excluding anyone who would disagree with that. Our contention is <clears throat> this is what we think the Bible says. Can we have a discussion about it? Can we just lay a groundwork for having a discussion to find out what is truth? Is there such a thing as absolute truth? The Bible argues that there is. Pluralism says there's no such thing as absolute truth. Our contention is, can we just lay a groundwork for having a discussion on these issues without us getting offended or anybody else getting mad? Can we just talk about this thing to find out if there is truth I really want to possess it. I really want to know truth. Amen? Mm -hmm. 
I was in Macaroni Grill having lunch. Oh, uh, there's your problem. Right there's now. my problem. A couple of weeks ago. There's your true confession. There it is. Yes. And uh, our waiter came up to us and he said to us, me and a, another fellow Christian worker in the valley, he said, do you have any big plans for the day? And I said, yes, I do. To love Jesus with all my heart and serve him with everything I've got. To which he said, well, whatever works for you. <laughs> There it is, right? That's your thing. I'm going to do mine. And I wasn't prepared to launch into uh, <laughs> Jesus is the only way sermon at that moment, but you, could, you can feel it. I, and I was sitting with another a good friend of Mary and I's uh, at a basketball game here a few months ago, and uh, we were talking about the claims of the gospel. He had visited our church, and he said, if you Christians would just give up this demand that you are right and everybody else is wrong, I would join To which I said, and this is what I think we have to put it back on, I think, is I follow Jesus. This is what Jesus said. I believe the Bible. This is what the Bible said. And therefore, I must obey and follow his teaching. I have no choice. I'm a Christian. I'll follow him. Now, the end result of our truth, of what we believe the Bible teaches, is that we are called to lay down our lives, to pray for to be a blessing to the very ones who oppose and disagree with us. The end result of the truth of the Bible is that we lay down our lives for our enemies. The end result of what we see on television and what we see ascending in the culture today is that if you don't agree with me, I can kill you. <clears throat> I can kill you either, uh, literally or I can kill you character-wise. Or I, I, It's my right, it's my prerogative because this is right for me to do away with you. Total polar opposites. Now, we look at that and say, well, certainly Christians did that during the Crusades and during the Inquisition, and that's a true statement. It doesn't mean they were right. And our contention is that it is the claim of the Bible that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And he proved that, he, he believed that to such an extent, he lived that to such an extent that he was willing to die for the very ones who were killing him so that even they, we, could get into the presence of the Father. Yeah, I think what us Christians should aim for is a discussion with the culture and, and a place where we can openly have different perspectives. You know, we talk about tolerance in our culture today. It's a popular word. And we should embrace tolerance, at least at this level, that we should have freedom to believe whatever we want in America. That's a good thing. And to live and practice that. We believe that as America. That's a good thing. That is a healthy level of tolerance. And to have a culture where we can have an honest discussion about this. Now, unfortunately, what Christians are being told today is to just go do your thing privately and quietly. Don't bring that truth claim into the culture. That's where we're being sidelined by the culture. And we shouldn't let that happen. We want to have an honest, open conversation in the culture. But tolerance should never go this far, where we say everybody's view is absolutely equal. And everybody's view is absolutely true. Because that can't possibly be right. And we should not accept that. We should have openness to practice and believe what we want, but also say it's okay to think one way is superior to another because of X number of factors and facts and things that are true. And that's what we should argue for. We look at the Bible as being an objective, outside, transcendent <laughs> message that has been given to us to explain what absolute eternal truth is. 
That's why we have established the Bible as our pattern, our rule of governance for life and practice here. Now, let's look for a minute. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and let's look at what, the, what gospel is it that the Bible delivers to us. What is the gospel as the Bible outlines it? Let's look there in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5, and he tells us four things in that passage. There are four definite descriptors of the gospel in that passage. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, it says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here they are, four things. First off, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Everything that happened to Christ was in accordance with the Old Testament prophecies. Secondly, verse 4, He was buried. Thirdly, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Mm -hmm. And fourthly, verse 5, that He appeared. He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then to Paul, then to the Five Hundred. But He appeared. Those four things constitute the Gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And He appeared to people as a living human being. That is the Gospel. Yeah, uh, John three sixteen and 17, the very famous words of the gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. And that's the message that um, all of us are born with a problem. And this problem is universal. It's not just Christian's problem. It's the whole world's problem. It's every human being's problem. We are sinners. Uh, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so this is not just a Christian problem. This is a worldwide, all-humanity problem. We are sinners, and how are we going to deal with that? Now, when we look at the problem of humanity, each discipline comes at it and says, well, there's just a lack. You know, if they just, if they just had more of. My favorite author of all time is Arthur Custance, and he has a great paragraph on this that we're going to deal with in our next sermon on this series, which is over into September, I believe it is. But he said, eugenicists say that the problem with humanity is a lack of proper breeding. Educationists say that the problem with humanity is the lack of proper education. Sociologists say that it's a lack of proper society. The Bible says it's not a lack of something, it's the presence of something. Mm -hmm. It's not that we lack, it's that sin is here. Sin is present, sin exists. And in its existence, in its presence, it creates a problem. It's not that we are lacking something, it's that we possess sin. Now, what are we going to do about sin? Yeah. And that's when Jesus enters yeah, the picture, yeah. when he said, mm -hmm. I will pay the price mm -hmm. for your sin mm -hmm. in front of a holy God mm -hmm. so that you can experience freedom if you will give me your life yeah. and I become your Lord. Yeah. So the, the, the universal problem <clears throat> is sin and the universal solution is that we have a Savior who died and rose again and conquered sin. It's the only person who has done this. It's the only solution to this problem. Jesus died and he rose again. No one else has done that. And conquered sin and death and offers us now salvation through personal faith in him. 
And what we often say is, for those of you who've been to Discovering His Life and been through our course, we use uh, sort of an illustration of a stool as what it means to have faith. Because the, the question we want to ask ourselves is, how do we get right with God? That's the, the most important question of all humanity. How do we get right with our God? And the Bible says through faith in Jesus. And, and historically, faith is composed of three parts. There are some facts. There is an acceptance of those facts, and then there's a personal trust in those facts. And so uh, we would say that, uh, just using this stool as an example, I would say that's a stool, that's a fact. Um, I might give assent to this by saying, um, I believe that stool is strong enough to hold me. I can sit on it and won't be made a fool of in front of all of you because it will hold me. And then I can personally trust in that stool by sitting on it. Okay, that's faith. I just put my faith in that stool. And we're to have that same kind of faith with God, that we are to believe that uh, there is a God that created us, that he sent his son who was the perfect reflection of all that God is, fully God, fully man, that he lived a perfect life, and that he died a perfect death for our sins and that he rose again. And we're to believe those facts. And then, now by the way, the, the demons, it says in James, believe that much. In fact, they maybe know more about God than we do. They believe that much. Then they're not saved. So there, there then has to be a personal trust with our lives in Jesus where we personally trust him, sit on him and rest on him for what he's done for us. And the Bible says when you display that kind of faith in Jesus personally, you are saved. And Paul says, I know that this kind of lifestyle, you know, back in our First Corinthians passage, I know this kind of lifestyle, it's, it's a lifestyle of self-sacrifice. It's a lifestyle of death to self. And, and how many of you just enjoy, just love to pieces all of the death to self you've been invited to partake in? It's not fun sometimes. <laughs> and Paul looks at us in First Corinthians fifteen nineteen and said, If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all we get is this life, then we're, we're to be thoroughly pitied. But, you know, we could have been living a life of revelry and party. And how many of us in this room had that kind of life and all we did was wake up the next morning hungover and diseased? And we found that revelry cannot bring peace. How many of us, that's what we want at night is to be able to close our eyes in peace and be able to go to sleep. The way to attain that peace, according to the Bible, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. through that faith relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. He gives peace. Yeah. And He is, He said, the only way to it. Mm -hmm. So we argue that Jesus, the way of Jesus is superior to all other ways. It is the way of life. And Jesus Himself said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, He says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, has given up all these things for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And so when we give our lives to Jesus and the cost is high, it's our life. He says you will get more than a hundred times back and in the end you get life, eternal life that lasts forever. So our contention is that the Bible claims and demands exclusivity, that God said there's only one way into my house, and that is through Jesus Christ. Now, let's ask ourselves the question, why in the world could God claim such exclusivity? Why can He claim that there's only one way to Him? Why can't we come to Him and say, no, I get to choose my way. What makes you think you're the only one who can determine that? He answers that question for us. 
Let's turn, turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. And before, while you're turning, I'm going to read you a passage out of Exodus 20. It's the Ten Commandments, and God comes to him in that first commandment and says, You shall have no other gods before me. Well, that's an exclusive statement. You will have no other gods before me. That's exclusionary. How can he make that statement? Because of what he had just said in the verse prior to that, which was, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the one who bought you. Now... With that claim, with that truth, I'm telling you, you'll have no other gods before me. Why can he claim exclusivity? Because of the price he paid. In that 1 Corinthians 6, now he makes this statement, look in verse 20. He makes this statement two times in this book, here and in 723. He says, you are bought with a price. He makes that statement two times. But in chapter 6, he makes that statement in connection with how does this impact our relationship with God? You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We have a responsibility to God because of the exclusive claim He has on us. The second one in chapter 7 verse 23 is, you were bought with a price. How does that impact our relationship with humans? Do not become slaves to men. Do not be enslaved again to those around you. He has an exclusive claim because of the price He paid for us. Yeah. You know, God is our creator. And when God is our creator, he gets to tell us what we're going to do. And uh, he loves us, so it's a good thing when he tells us what to do. But he is God. Uh, another reason I think that, that the Bible or God has a claim on our lives is because of God's character and his holiness. God is absolutely holy. He's absolutely pure. And ultimately and finally, he cannot allow sin in his presence. And so he has to deal with our sin problem. And he has to make us righteous apart from anything we do because we aren't righteous and we know that intrinsically inside of us. We know this. And so the gospel provides an answer to that question. How do we get right before a holy God? How do we become acceptable to a holy God? And the answer is only Jesus because his righteousness is given to us, see? And now we stand holy and righteous before him. We are acceptable. And the guilt and the, and the shame that we carry is paid for in the cross where Jesus actually paid the penalty and hung shamefully on that cross to carry all that burden for us. And so now we come before God in Jesus, fully accepted and holy and righteous before him. And there is no other way of getting that to that place with God. There's none. Logically, there is none. And so Jesus is the only way because of that. His glory is so high, our sin <clears throat> is so low, that to span that chasm is beyond our ability. <clears throat> the only way to span that chasm is through the introduction of the sacrifice of Christ because He is as holy as God is holy. He is, mm -hmm. God. He is God. Which brings us to the third reason that God can claim exclusivity. It's because of the glory of Christ. Mm -hmm. And to say that Christ is just another man, he's, he, he might have been a great prophet, but really at the end of the day, he's just another man. It's like calling a Maserati a cool way to get around, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, the SST, yeah. it'll mm -hmm. get you from here to there. No. Mm -hmm. The glory of Christ is so much greater than that if all we do is say he was a good man, he was even a great prophet, we have reduced his glory. Mm -hmm. It is a disgrace. It is a defilement to who he is to... Yes. Bring him down to our level and say he's no more than one of us. Yes. No, he is God in the flesh who came to pay for our sin. 
Uh, John 1.12 says, But to all who received him, those who believed in his name, and that's the key word there, I believe, he gave the right to become the children of God. So we're to believe in his name, and his name is all that he is in his glory, all his greatness. He is wonderful counselor, mighty father, the eternal God. That is Jesus. And to make him less than that is to not receive him. And, and so God's glory is at stake. When we diminish something that is glorious and treat it like something way less, right? To say that Jesus is only a man is to make him suddenly f- fall from being God to just a good prophet. That is a, that is a horrendous evil. Um, if you have a brand new child and you treat that child like a brand new dog... That is a horrendous evil because a human being is made in the image of God and is glorious compared to that dog, see? And this is why I believe hell is understandable because when you sin against an infinite God, you commit an infinite sin against an infinitely holy God and therefore the punishment is infinite. And uh, it's a, it's, this, I think, is the biggest reason, actually, that all of the glory of God resides in Christ and is to be honored as so, the Savior who died for our sins. When you look around you and we think about past civilizations, all civilizations have gone searching for God. Why? Because they look at creation around them and they go, wow, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Something had to have been out there to, to create all of this. And so they've gone looking from the bottom up and so many times they've ended up looking into anger and fierceness and they make sacrifices based on, oh God, whatever it is, Mother Earth, Father Sky, that created all of this stuff. Please don't destroy my crops. Please don't send devastation and pestilence and destroy us. Because they, they somehow perceive this magnificence being associated with anger. And yet the Bible tells us, the Bible is that transcendent message that lets us know that creation screams the truth, Mm -hmm. the the presence of a creator. Mm -hmm. But what creation tells us, according to Romans 1.20, is that this creator has eternal power and divine nature. And this creator's name is Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so it reveals... From the top down, in all of our looking for him, we'd have never found anyone as glorious as Jesus. Mm -hmm. And yet in his revelation, we see that God is a God of such love and such greatness that he would be willing to diminish himself and submit himself to the angers and the antagonism of his creation and endure the tragedy Mm -hmm. of the cross for us. Mm -hmm. I I think this... um can we look at this, this beautiful picture? Can we look at it from another side? This is helpful too. If Jesus indeed is God and most glorious and most infinite in love, unlike any other person that has ever lived, if indeed this is the truth about Jesus and we believe that, then why would we say to another culture, there's another way for you? See, that, that, that's, that's just, that is just doing harm to another culture. It's insulting to say to another culture, your God is this God. A lesser beautiful Less glorious than Jesus. And that's your God. No, Jesus is for the whole world. This beautiful person, this amazing life that's found in Him, good news, it's for everybody. It's not just for us. It's for everybody. And why would we deny any culture the opportunity to know God through Jesus? Why would we do that? That's shameful. And so we invite everybody to the good news, the great blessed hope of knowing Christ as Savior. Friends, the ultimate, the ultimate sin is the sin of rejecting God. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. 
That's the sin that cannot be pardoned because once we stand at that final judgment seat and, and he yeah. says, no, you rejected me. We, we have pronounced our own sentence. No God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he has to look at us and say, okay. And hell is a completely reasonable, logical end conclusion of our choice to reject him. That is the ultimate sin. That a God of extreme, overwhelming, unimaginable love looked at us and said, I'm going to do what's necessary to bring you into a love relationship with me. Yeah. And then he sent Jesus. In John fifteen thirteen. he said, Greater love has no man than this. Here's the definition of love. That a man will lay down his life for his friends. And friends, he laid down his life for the purpose of looking at us and saying, Would you be a friend of mine? Would you come into a relationship with me? I'll take you to meet mm-hmm. the Father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This gospel that we embrace as the only way is really the only way of a life of love, of ultimate sacrifice and laying down our life. Because we can't lay down our lives ultimately and finally until we have first had our lives laid down for by Jesus and received that. When we receive that love, now we have a reservoir of love out of which to give and love the world, see? And so if you want the world to find true salvation and truly be a better place, it must be a world that receives the love of Jesus, a a God who would die for us. And now because he laid down his life for us, we can lay down our lives for others, see? And so it is a, a way of love unmatched. It is the only ultimate way to be truly loving people is to experience the love of Jesus found uh, because of God's love for us. This is, this is the conclusion of what we believe the Bible teaches is that God started a conversation with us. Mm-hmm. He's the one who mm-hmm. came to Abraham. Abraham never would have found God apart from the revelation of him. And, and we had never found God if he hadn't come looking for us. He, he started the conversation with each one of us. He's inviting us into that conversation through a relationship with Jesus. And the question that he has for each one of us today is, will you receive him? Will you receive Jesus as your personal Savior under his lordship of your life? Will you come to him and say, God, man, I'm so thankful that you're willing to die for my sins. Thank you for for forgiving me of my sins. And in response to that, I will give you my life. I will do what you tell me to do. I'll go where you tell me to. Please, God, just use me. That's his invitation. And if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, we would invite you to at least consider the invitation of the Bible to come to him for the forgiveness of sins, to submit to him as Lord of your life, and to experience a life that's changed through an indwelling Christ. Yeah, these truths have an immensely practical side to them. It's, I mean, it, it's interesting to discuss these things, I think, at some <coughs> level. That's why we do this series in part, because they're, they're interesting questions. But ultimately, they're infinitely personal. What will we do with these truths? What will we do with, with this message called the Bible that was spoken as a love letter to us? What will you do in your heart? Will you receive Christ? Will you give your life to Him? Or will you take that immense great risk and say, I don't know if that's true, and go on living your own way? Uh, How can you turn your back on that kind of love? A God, if there's any chance that there's a God out there that loves you and wants to walk with you, won't you give him a chance? Please, give him a chance. You'll be amazed at what Jesus will mean to your heart if you invite him in. As the band comes, we're going to invite you. We're going to be taking Lord's Supper here in a few minutes. 
We would invite you to take some time and just make sure everything's right between you and Jesus. Now, we practice open communion here, which means if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, we invite you to partake of Lord's Supper with us. But we want to give you a few minutes to, to just make sure we're clean in front of Jesus. While the band plays here for a minute or two, if there's something that you need to get right, take care of, take care of it with Jesus now, man. We don't have to strike a pose or wait for the right time. Now's the time. Today's the appointed time. Let's, let's do it now. And if you would like to accept Jesus as your Savior, it is as simple and as profound as this. Dear God, I'm so sorry I have sinned against you. Thank you for Jesus. Please forgive me of my sins. I give you my life. Will you be my Lord? There are two requirements to take communion in a way that honors God this morning. One is to do and, or have done what Robert has just mentioned, that we personally know Christ as our own Savior. We've asked him to forgive us of our sins. And as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are saying, Jesus, you are mine. I've taken you as my own. But also then, just to make sure we're right between us and others, if there's sin between you and somebody else, you need to confess it to take that time now so that you come then in a holy way before God to participate. Let's take that time in prayer now quietly before God. The Bible says that our sins have separated between us and our God. In Isaiah chapter 59, said so they're a barrier between us and God. And, and the Bible tells us that Jesus' flesh, it was his body, that when he died on the cross, he tore down that veil. He destroyed that separation between us and God. And now he invites us into a relationship with the Father. As the deacons come to help with the, offer, the, the uh, Lord's Supper this morning, as we hand out the bread, that's what we're handing out. The reminder that by this bread, by, by the body of Christ, we have been invited into the presence of God. That's a pretty amazing invitation, isn't it?